Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, or Eli James, and this is the Voice of Christian Israel, October 24th, 2010. Today I decided to, um, when I had the opportunity to do this program, which was originally supposed to be along with Sword Brethren, but he couldn't make it, I decided to do the um, the seventh segment, actually. It, it's it's a third segment that I had prepared for the 10-10-10 marathon event that Eli and I held on the Christian founding of the United States. So today I am going to do that segment. And this will discuss the various foundings of our colonies here as Christian colonies. The first half of this presentation will be various notes from a book that I will make available on Christogenian PDF format this afternoon. Notes from the Christian life and character of the civil institutions of the United States developed in the official and historical annals of the Republic by B.F. Morris. Published by George Childs, Cincinnati, 1864. From the first paragraph of the preface, this volume is committed to the American people in the firm assurance that the invaluable facts which it records will be grateful to every patriotic and pious heart. In it, as from the richest minds, has been brought out the pure gold of our history. Its treasures have been gathered and placed in this casket for the instruction and benefit of the present and future. We have a noble historic life, for our ancestors were the worthies of the world. We have a noble nation full of the evidences of the molding presence of Christian truth and of the power and goodness of divine wisdom in rearing up a Christian republic for all time. Of course, he couldn't have foreseen what has happened to us today. That this was the spirit and aim of the early founders of our institutions, the facts in this volume fully testify. Let me make a note that this book was registered with the state of Pennsylvania in 1863, as was the custom before the federalization of copyright laws following the War of Northern Aggression. And so this book was written and published in the midst of that war. From the preface, page six. The work is not speculative or theoretical, but a series of facts to unfold and establish the Christian life and character of the civil institutions of the United States in the light of which every American citizen can trace to its source the glory, true glory of the nation and learn to appreciate its institutions and to venerate and imitate the great and good men who founded them. That's why we don't read about them. The Jews are afraid we, may not, we, we might start imitating them. It has been a delightful task of patriotism and piety to the compiler to prepare the volume and to lay it as a grateful offering upon the common altar of his country 
and of Christianity. The author describes the making of this volume at length and lists all of his sources and all of the, all of the authors of those sources. While some of his sources are religious works, most of them are the works of notable men, such as Webster or Sanderson, who wrote a large volume of biographies of the signers of Declaration of Independence, of which an 1846 revision is available online. That's one of his key sources. From pages 25 and 26, the institutions of the North American Republic had their birth in baptism from the free inspirations and genius of the Christian religion. This fact has given to the state its political power and moral glory and shed new light on the benign nature and adaptation of the Christian system to secure the highest political prosperity to the nation. Let me first let, let me add that the first commonwealths were not communist. There is a huge difference. This following paragraph is in quote marks in the book, but the source is not given as we see citations in books today, right? Quote, Christianity is the principal and all-pervading element, the deepest and most solid foundation of all our civil institutions. It is the religion of the people, the national religion, but we have neither an established church nor an established religion. An established church implies a connection between church and state and the possession of civil and political as well as of ecclesiastical and spiritual power by the former. Neither exist in this country, for the people have wisely judged that religion, as a general rule, is safer in their hands than in the hands of those of the rulers. In the United States, there is no toleration for all enjoy equality in religious freedom, not as a privilege granted, but as a right secured by fundamental law of our social compact. Liberty of conscience and freedom of worship are not chartered immunities, but rights and duties founded on the constitutional republication of reason and revelation. That's the end of Morris's quote. Now back to Morris. The theory and faith of the founders of the civil and political institutions of the United States practically carried out these statements. They had no state church or state religion, but they constituted the Christian religion, the underlying foundation and the girding and guiding element of their systems of civil, political, and social institutions. This proposition will be confirmed by the following summary of historic facts, which have an extended record in the various chapters of this volume. Here in his first chapter, Morris lists his arguments which prove his thesis, and the balance of the chapters of his book contain that proof. Here I will read his arguments. First, the Christian inspirations and purpose of the founders and fathers of the Republic. It was a popular legend of the ancients which gave to their laws, literature, and religion a sacred solemnity and power that the founders of empires received immediate inspiration from the gods, 
and that their systems of government came from the responses of the deities who presided in their temples of religion. This myth, in a Christian sense, was a grand and glorious fact with the wise and skillful workmen who, under God, created and completed the civil institutions of the United States. No special, no claim to special inspiration from heaven is set up for the fathers of our republic. It would, however, be a violence to historic truth not to affirm and admit that they were under the special and constant guidance of an overruling providence, the Bible as the divine charter of their political rights, as well as of their hopes of immortality, they reverently studied and on it laid the cornerstone of all of their compacts and institutions. The mosaic system of political jurisprudence, which, quote, contains more consummate wisdom and common sense than all the legislators and political writers of the ancient nations. The founders of the American Republic thoroughly understood and incorporated its free spirit and democratic principles into their organic institutions. Secondly, the Christian men who formed our civil institutions were trained and prepared for their work in scenes of conflict in which the truest ideas of liberty and religion were developed. Great ideas and the forward movements of the ages have received their inspiration and impetus from civil and religious agitations and revolutions. This fact has its historic analogy in the conflicts that preceded the planting of a Christian republic on the North American continent. The whole of the 16th century was a period of active preparation for future times. And all that is great in modern science may be said to have received its foundation in the agitations that grew out of that period of the world. It forms one of the grandest and richest eras in human history. Whilst it was an age replete with the most splendid triumphs in science and literature, it was preeminent also for its elaboration and vindication of the fundamental principles of civil and religious liberty. The persecutions of the Puritans in England for nonconformity and the religious agitations and conflicts in, German, in Germany by Luther, in Geneva by Calvin, and in Scotland by Knox, were the preparatory ordeals for qualifying Christian men for the work of establishing the civil institutions on the American continent. God sifted in these conflicts a whole nation that he might send choice grain over into this wilderness. And the blood and persecution of martyrs became the seed of both the church and the state. It was, it was in these schools of fiery trial that the founders of the American Republic were educated and prepared for their grand Christian mission, and in which their faith and characters became strong and earnest with Christian truth. They were trained in stormy times in order to prepare them to elaborate and establish the fundamental principles of civil and religious liberty and of just systems of government, civil government. Brewster and Winthrop and Roger Williams and Penn and George Calvert 
and Oglethorpe and Otis and Adams and Jefferson and Washington with their illustrious co-laborers could trace their true political parentage to Pym and Hampton and Wycliffe and Milton and to Cromwell and to the ages in which they vindicated the principles of liberty and sealed many of them their faith by martyrdom. Thirdly, thus inspired and prepared, the Christian men of Puritan times and of the Revolution presented and developed the true symbol of civil government. A nation, in the embodied form and spirit of its institutions, is the symbol of some one leading idea. This rules its civil administration, directs its social crystallization, and forms its political, martial, and moral character. Here, B.F. Morris proceeds to show the foundations upon which the great movements of the past were built, including the Hebrew, the Greek, the Roman, the French, and the British. Except for the Hebrew, he shows their inherent flaws. I will be passing over this section. The Hebrew Commonwealth, he concludes, was the symbol of a theocratic government. Its rituals of religion and liberty maintained the form and diffused the spirit of freedom and of a true Republican government. Its nationality, growing out of peculiar and local causes, after ages of historic grandeur, passed away. It was the first and the last type of a national theocratic republic. The Roman Empire, in its colossal unity and form, was the symbol of law, of the stately grandeur of a strong government, and the reign of military rule and conquest. Its stable origin and the mythical communion of its founder, Numa, who was the legendary second king of old Rome after Romulus, with the divinities, gave rigid religious caste to its civil and military institutions and transactions. The science of Roman jurisprudence educated the citizens of the empire with the cardinal virtues of loyalty and patriotism. Religion is a Roman word signifying obligation to the government. Here is one error that I find. For the Latin word religio originally meant a sense of right and conscience. It originally gave oblig signified obligation to good governance. A Roman citizen could no more be loyal, disloyal to his country than to the gods. This conviction gave to the government a religious character and made it invincible in war and strong in governmental authority and influence. Cicero, in one of his addresses, refers to the religious element of the Roman Empire in these words, quote, However much we may be disposed to exalt our advantages, it is, nevertheless, certain that we have been surpassed in population by the Spaniards, in physical force by the Gauls, in shrewdness and cunning by Carthage, in the fine arts by Greece, and in mere native talents by some of our Italian fellow countrymen, who were for the most part Greek. But in the single point of attention to religion, we have excelled all other nations, and it is to the favorable influence of this circumstance upon the character of the people that I account for our success in acquiring the political and military ascendancy we now enjoy throughout the world. 
Here let me state that Rome indeed had a true religion at one time, and that is clear in Paul's epistle to the Romans, where he states in chapter 1 that they had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. But then in chapter 2, Paul explains that Roman society was founded on justice, the source of which is revealed in his allusion to Jeremiah at 2.15, and he commends them for it. Indeed, the story of Rome is the story of America. It was built in piety, and it crumbles in multiculturalism and idolatry. Now back to Morris. This pervading religious element produced also the loftiest martial enthusiasm in the Roman citizen. The attachment of the Roman soldiers, says Gibbon, was inspired by the united influence of religion and honor. In union with these civil and martial virtues in Roman citizens, the symbol of their government resulted in producing and blending some of the milder virtues of social and domestic life. Female character was formed on the most finished models of pagan excellence. Chastity was a golden virtue, and to educate sons for statesmen or soldiers was the highest ambition of the most illustrious ladies of Rome. Morris here continues to show the foundations of Greek institutions being vain and degenerating in the mob rule which passed for democracy, and how the British Empire was built on selfish greed, and how France was poisoned by atheism and vainglory. He then contrasts the United States by saying that, the founders of the Christian Republic of North America adopted the symbol of civil and religious liberty as the great idea and the end of all their civil institutions, the end meaning the purpose. They had the most glorious conceptions of the genius of the Christian religion, not only as a system of spiritual doctrines, but as designed and adapted to create and carry on the best and freest forms of civil government. They held to the faith that civil government was an ordination of God, and that its administration ought to harmonize with the will and law of God as revealed in the Bible. This great object was kept before the minds of the founders and fathers of the Republic. And their beau ideal of civil government was that which was found in the Christian religion. As the fruits of this symbol or leading idea and purpose contrast the Christian Republic of North America with the fruits of ancient and modern nations. Fourthly, the Christian religion has a clear and full recognition in the civil constitutions and state papers of the Fathers of the Republic. Official records express the faith and theory of those who form and administer the civil institutions of a nation. The Fathers and Founders of the American Republic, being Christian men and designing to form a Christian republic would be expected to imbue their state papers and their civil constitutions with the spirit and sentiments of the Christian religion. This fact is historic in the civil institutions of the country and gives to its official documents a Christian feature and influence which belong only to American constitutions and American political annals.
During the revolution, the states assumed their separate sovereignties and formed state constitutions. These civil charters, as this work will show, were full and explicit in their incorporation of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian religion. And their constitutions prohibited men from holding office who did not publicly assent to their faith in the being of a God, the divinity of the Bible, and the, in the distinctive evangelical truths of Christianity. The state papers of the Continental Congress were also full of the spirit and sentiments of the Christian system. Under the great seal of state, official documents were sent out to the nation and the world, which affirmed, where he was quoting these documents, merits and mediation of Jesus Christ to obtain forgiveness and pardon for sin. And prayed, again quoting, that pure and undefiled religion may be universally diffused, that vice and irreligion may be banished, and virtue and piety established by grace, that the nation may be made a holy nation, and that the religion of our divine Redeemer with all its benign influences may cover the earth as the waters do the sea, that God would grant to his church the plentiful effusions of divine grace and pour out his Holy Spirit upon all ministers of the gospel. Here it is evident that the word church meant the entire body of Christian people, and no particular organized institution. Still quoting the papers of the Continental Congress, Morris states that he would establish the independence of these United States upon the basis of religion and virtue and diffuse the established habits of sobriety or order, morality, and piety. That he would take under his guardianship all schools and seminaries of learning and make them nurseries of piety and virtue, and cause pure religion to virtue and flourish. Pure religion and virtue to flourish, I'm sorry. And that he would fill the world with his glory. All of these being quotes from the papers of the Continental Congress, as cited by Mars. All their bills of rights and remonstrances against the usurpations of the British government glowed with the fervid and impassioned sentiments of liberty and religion, and their high Christian tone and diction form a rich part of the Christian political literature of the Republic. Fifthly, the popular utterances of the Christian men who formed our civil institutions declare the Christian religion to be the symbol of the Republic. Puritan divines and lawgivers and the statesmen and patriots of the revolution unite their testimony on this point. They affirmed in every form the indissoluble union of religion and liberty. They uttered no such political atheism as, quote, liberty first and religion afterwards, unquote. But maintaining the divine origin of both, they constituted their indissoluble union in the civil system of government which they formed. In the pulpit, before popular assemblies, in the forums of public justice, before the tribunes of the people, in the halls of legislation, in the public press, in tracts, essays, books, printed sermons, and orations, did the men of Puritan and Revolutionary times utter their great thoughts and declare the union of liberty and religion. 
A divine enthusiasm glowed in all of their popular utterances that swept with electric energy through the public mind and conscience and which prepared the people for liberty, independence, and a Christian nationality. This historic fact will be conclusively established in the present volume. And it is. Sixthly, the revolution for liberty, independence, and constitutional government had its source in religion and was the cause of its energy and final victory. And I must add that all of this began with the Reformation and the desire for men to free themselves from tyrants. It still has not happened because we must realize that while the founders of this nation aspired to the ideal, we can only be free with Yahweh and his word, and not even they understood that word entirely, nor were they meant to. Back to Morris. History, as it records the events of ages and the progress of nations to higher conditions of freedom and prosperity through revolutions, declares that religion has been the companion of liberty in all her conflicts and in all her battles. Let me again interject that when Rome lost her religion, as pagan as we perceive it to be, she lost her freedom to tyrants. But Rome was pagan. It is protested. Well, let me state that the Roman Republic was nevertheless founded upon the rule of law and a true sense of social justice. The Hebrew was not pagan to begin with, and while they had Yahweh in their mouths, they did not have him in their hearts nor their actions. Rome lasted twice as long as the Hebrew kingdom, and such is the difference between lip service and the true seeking of justice. If Rome had kept her morality in spite of her other errors, she would have stood firm. If we'd have kept our morality in spite of our lip service to God, we would have stood firm. Now back to Morris. The American Revolution adds another grand illustration of this historic truth that splendid victory for the liberty and constitutional governments was not won by numbers, nor military genius, nor by armies and navies, nor by any combination of human means. But only through liberty intensified and made heroic through religion. This was the breath of its life, and carried it sublimely on till victory crowned our arms and our banners, waved over a free republic. It was the inspirations of religion that girded our heroes for war, that guided our statesmen in civil councils, that fired and filled the hearts of the people with hope and courage, and gave to all the scenes of that grand conflict of Christian beauty, power, and glory. Its influence flowed from every source. The cradle songs of childhood, the home scenes of prayer and piety, the common and academic schools of the country, the Christian colleges of the republic, the literature of the age, the songs of patriotism and religion, the eloquence of the forum and the pulpit, the councils of civil cabinets, 
and the military camps, public men and private citizens of all classes became the medium of diffusing the religious spirit and power of the revolution. This fact induced Washington to say, quote, I am sure that there never was a people who had more reason to acknowledge a divine interposition in their affairs than those of the United States. And I should be pained to believe that they have forgotten that agency which was so often manifested during the revolution, or that they failed to consider the omnipotence of that God who is alone able to protect them. He must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. Now, if Washington said this, then where do the Jews and all who assisted them who have stolen our heritage and destroyed our Christian civilization, where do they stand in the eyes of Yahweh our God today? Seventhly, The Christian annals of the Republic declared that religion was the ruling influence and moral power of the Republic. The historic grandeur and moral significance of the civil and political annals of the American nation consist in their Christian spirit and declarations. The inspirations and ideas of civil and religious liberty which they embody the fundamental and inalienable rights of human nature which they announce and defend, the eternal laws of civil and political science which they affirm, the basis of just and orderly organic governments, and the civil structures which have risen and rest upon it, and which the annals of the Republic present and unfold. The Christian nationality which they historically declare and which they have contributed to form the spirit and language in which the annals of the nation are written and which permeate the state papers of the Republic from the Puritan to the Revolutionary Era and in some good degree from the era of the Revolution to the present time, 1863. The, revolu the, the philosophy and language of American history and American literature, whether poetic, scientific, educational, political, or religious, all these constitute the facts and moral glory of the annals of the nation and unite in recording and presenting them in a Christian form and spirit. Divest American annals of this, their grandest and most important feature, and their value and glory would vanish. And they have. The reverent and careful student of the annals of the American Republic will find them imbued with the benign, masculine, thoughtful spirit of the Christian religion. This feature gives them an interest, influence, and importance of political and moral preeminence over the annals of every, every other nation, whether ancient or modern. Eighthly, Christian monuments and altars of, of religion and liberty. Nations which are in historic grandeur have numerous memorials whose inspirations and influences aid in the diffusion of a healthy public sentiment. He's not talking about the Holocaust Museum. 
and in the formation of a true nationality. They educate the people to admire and imitate the heroic virtues of the men and scenes of moral or martial glory, which the memorials are designed to commemorate and perpetuate. The custom is coeval with time and has divine sanction. The annals of the Hebrew Commonwealth record the consecration of numerous altars, places, and temples to religion and liberty. These were the symbols of their faith, and from them flowed beneficent and copious influences to form the intense religious nationality of that remarkable people and to mold all their institutions. It was a divine injunction, as well as a work of piety and patriotism for the Hebrew people, and I don't think he's talking about Jews, to walk about Zion and to go round about, tell the towers thereof, mark well her bulwarks, and consider her palaces. A quote from Scripture. That they might tell it to future generations that this was our God. What Mars is saying is that our success is a reason to announce the glory of our God. And our monuments sing his praises. The annals of American piety and patriotism have many similar memorials. A republic, the outgrowth of the re Christian religion, whose history glows with the manifest presence and providences of God, and whose freedom is baptized with the sufferings and blood of martyred patriots and saints, would hollow many memorials of historic associations and grandeur. The American Republic is rich in the monuments of piety and patriotism, and their influences and associations have had and continue to have the highest historic value and instruction for every American citizen, and are fraught with some of the noblest and purest lessons of religion and liberty. Their genial and inspiring power has been diffusive and beneficent in infusing fresher love for our civil institutions and deepening and strengthening that intense enthusiasm for our freedom and free institutions, which is characteristic of every loyal American. American history in the Christian and patriotic scenes, achievements, and men which it records is peculiarly grand and rich in this element and influence of our national sentiment and power. The altars of religion, the monuments of nature and art, the scenes of martial and moral glory, the halls of constitutional freedom, and the temples of legislation and organized civil governments, around all of which cluster memorable, memorable associations and glowing inspirations are eminently worthy of record and should be reverently studied by every patriot and Christian. Ninthly, the Christian faith and character, personal and political, of most of the men who originated and constructed our civil institutions affirmed the presiding genius and power of the Christian religion. Sacred history and the institutions which it unfolds have their life and glory from the good and great men whom the providence and spirit of God raised up and qualified for their varied and important missions. In nothing does the superiority of the Bible over all other books appear more manifest than in its graphic and inimitable delineations of human character. From first to last, 
it opens to our view, besides poets and orators, a magnificent succession of living characters, kings and statesmen, heroes and patriarchs, prophets and apostles, who constituted the glory of the age and nation in which they acted, and whose character and influence are a rich part of the political and moral wealth of the world. The American Republic, like the Hebrew Commonwealth, has its chief glory from the good and great men who have adorned its civic and Christian history and were the active agents in building up the organic forms of the social and political life of the Republic. Notice here that Morris considered the ancient Hebrews to be pre-Christ Christians, as most of us in Christian Israel identity also do. Back to Morris. The Puritans and the men of colonial history were stalwart, noble Christian men. The men antecedent to and actors in the eventful drama of the revolution were, most of them, men whose minds were illuminated by divine influences and whose characters and lives bore the superscription and the image of Christ. All were not public professors of the Christian religion, but almost all acknowledged its divinity and necessity to the existence, welfare, and stability of the state. Their Christian faith and characters not only constitute the enduring glory of our republic, but are also the sources of the Christian features of our civil institutions. The true and lasting fame of the American nation, its political and moral glory, consists in the eminent and illustrious characters which have in each in each successive age of the republic adorned the state and directed its political destinies. Trained in the Christian school and formed under Christian influences and deriving their ideas of civil and religious liberty from the Bible, their practical faith led them to adopt it as the rule of life and to consult it as the source of their civil and political views and principles as well as of their religious and belief and hopes. The monument of these men of Puritan and revolutionary times is in the great Christian ideas and truths they elaborated and incorporated into the civil institutions of the nation and in the Christian virtues, public and private, which they bore as the fruits of their Christian faith. The leaders of our revolution were men of whom the simple truth is the highest praise. They were singularly sagacious, sober, thoughtful, and wise. Lord Chatham spoke, the, spoke only the truth when he said to Franklin of the men who composed the first colonial congress that, quote, the congress is the most honorable assembly of statesmen. since those of the ancient Greeks and Romans in the most virtuous times. They were, most of them, profound scholars and studied the history of mankind that they might know men. They were so familiar with the lives and thoughts of the wisest and best minds of the past 
that a classic aroma hangs about their writings and their speeches. And they were profoundly convinced of what statesmen know and mere politicians never perceive. That ideas are the life of a people. That the conscience, not the pocket, is the real citadel of a nation. To this I have to add that this is one of the very reasons that I stress the importance of the classics in understanding the past, something that our universities totally despise today. At the beckoning of the Jew, Morris put it eloquently. Here he quotes an unnamed writer. Events, says a living American divine, march in the train and keep step to the music of that divine logos which was and is and is to come. In order to act the right part in them and in order to understand them when they do come to pass, our intelligence must be in vital sympathy with that of their invisible author and arbiter. The divine purpose which is forcing its way into existence and preparing for itself a local habitation and a name must be reproduced in our own consciousness and embodied in our own life. This is the only way for men to become co-workers with the Most High in executing his sovereign behests. This is the ancient method by which from age to age mighty nations and all the elect spirits of the race and all the elect spirits of the race, Morris's words, have comprehended their heaven-appointed missions, fulfilled their tasks, and rendered themselves illustrious in human annals. This is the secret of that sacred enthusiasm which transformed eastern shepherds and nomads of the desert into venerable patriarch seers, warriors, and kings, which changed fishermen into apostles and evangelists, and which is able still to bless the world with heroes, saints, and martyrs. It is the prevalence of some divine idea in the soul, actuating the whole being and illuminating the path of life. Let a man grasp in honest conviction a real thought of God and spend his days striving to realize it, and he is on the highway to glory, honor, and immortality. Let a whole people grasp in conviction some sacred cause, some moral prince, some principle of immortal justice, and consecrate themselves to the work of vindicating that cause and enthroning that principle, and we have the grandest spectacle ever witnessed on earth. The grandeur of such a spectacle was seen in the faith and purpose of the fathers and founders of the American Republic. These men, as well as the people, did grasp a great and real thought of God and devoted themselves to its glorious realization. And the result was the vindication of eternal right and justice, and the creation and establishment of civil institutions in conformity to the principles and teachings of the Christian religion. 
It is in the light of this great historic fact that the faith and labors of the Puritans and the men of the Revolution are to be read and studied. This summary of the Christian facts and principles which belong to the history, formation, and progress of the civil institutions of the American Republic impresses the patriotic and pious duty of giving diligent attention and study to the annals of our nation and the origin and genius of our institutions, something, I must add, which modern education has separated us from entirely. The ancient republics regarded it as a high political necessity and duty to educate their citizens into the history and spirit of their peculiar institutions. Quote, the young men of the Roman Empire, says Gibbon, were so devoted to the study of the genius and structure of Roman law and government that the celebrated institutes of Justinian were addressed to the youth of his dominion who had devoted themselves to the science of Roman jurisprudence, and they had assurances from the reigning emperor that their skill and ability would in time be rewarded by an adequate share in the government of the republic. Today, the best thief wins. The Greek citizen, says Grimke, was subjected from the cradle to the grave to the full, undivided, never-varying influence of the peculiar institutions of his own country. The spirit of those institutions was forever living and moving around him, was constantly acting upon him at home and abroad, in the family, at the school, in the temple, and on national occasions. That spirit was unceasingly speaking to his eye and ear. It was his very breath of life. His soul was its habitation, till the battlefield or the sea, banishment, the, dun the dungeon or the hemlock, stripped him equally of his country and his life. If these duties were so faithfully discharged by the people of the ancient republics, how much higher and more important that the American people should know the history and nature of the civil institutions of their Christian republic and live under their constant and full power and thus be qualified to discharge with fidelity and conscientiousness all the duties of an American citizen. Be assured, says Grimke, if the American citizen rightly comprehends the genius of Christianity, the spirit of our institutions, the character of the age in which he lives, he must be deeply imbued with the benign, masculine, thoughtful spirit of religion. Let me commend to the profound study of every American citizen the institutions of their country and the noble illustrations of them to be found in the writings of our historians and statesmen, judges, orators, scholars, and divines. Let me commend to their reverence, gratitude, and imitation the character of Washington, the noblest personification of patriotic duty, dignity, and usefulness that men have ever seen. Let me commend to them to enter with a deep seriousness, yet with a glowing enthusiasm into the spirit of their institutions and of the age in which they live. Today, those writings have all been replaced with Jewish news rags, People magazine, and pulp novels. What a shame. Nothing would have a happier influence on the men of politics of our day. Nothing raise, expand, and purify them. Nothing would so exalt their conceptions and aims or give them higher significance or greater weight than a thorough and candid study of the Christian faith, 
characters and actions of the great and good men who founded our civil institutions and watched over their history and development. This duty, if faithfully discharged, would unfold the divine source of our civilization and the system of civil government, give a higher appreciation of the inheritance received from our fathers, and a firmer purpose to preserve and transmit them unimpaired in their original purity and glory to future ages and generations. Somewhere just after the Civil War, I would imagine that we as a people dropped the ball. This study would impress the fact stated by Sir William Jones, a great English jurist, who said, with great truth and beauty, that, quote, we live in the midst of blessings till we are utterly insensible of their greatness and of the source from whence they flow. We speak of our civilization, our arts, our freedom, our laws, and forget entirely how large a share is due to Christianity. Blot Christianity out of the pages of man's history, and what would his laws have been? What his civilization? Christianity is mixed up with our very being and our daily life. There is not a familiar object around which does not wear a different aspect because the life of Christian love is on it. Not a law which does not owe its gentleness to Christianity, not a custom which cannot be traced in all its holy, healthful parts to the gospel. That's the end of the, my, my notes from the introduction of Morris's book. And for the remainder of, of this presentation, I would like to go on to um, Morris's discussion of the Christian colonization and founding of our colonies. In chapters 5 and 6 of his book, book, Morris discusses the Christian colonization and founding of the New England colonies. Since there is not enough time here to adequately discuss all of these colonies, and since the association of the New England colonies with Christianity is most famous due to the illustriousness, or, or in the minds of some, due to, to the notoriety, of the Puritans, I am compelled to let those alone in order to discuss the Christian founding of the other colonies, which is not as well known. The balance of this information is from chapters 7 and 8 of this same book by B.F. Morris. Starting at page 82, Morris describes the Christian founding of various other colonies. The Christian Colonization of Pennsylvania In 1682, another important era in the Christian colonization of the North American continent was inaugurated. William Penn was singularly qualified to be, to be the founder of a Christian commonwealth. He had been educated under the influence of the gospel. He had studied the origin of government 
the nature of civil liberty and the rights of man in the light of the pure word of God and form the purpose of founding a Christian empire under free and peaceful precepts of Christianity. He had a firm faith in the great American idea that man, educated by Christianity, was capable of self-government. Finding no place in Europe to try the experiment of a Christian government, he resolved to seek it in America. The settlement of the province of Pennsylvania by William Penn formed a new era in the liberties of mankind. It afforded a resting place where the conscientious and oppressed people of Europe might repose and enjoy the rights of civil and religious freedom which mankind had derived as an inheritance from the Creator. He obtained from Charles II a grant of territory that now embraces the states of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. He was legally inducted to the governorship of this immense domain in England by the officers of the crown, and in 1682 arrived in the New World and assumed the civil government of the colony. He avowed his purpose to be to institute a civil government on the basis of the Bible and to administer it in the fear of the Lord. The acquisition and government of the colony, he said, was so to serve the truth and the people of the Lord that an example may be set to the nations. The frame of government which Penn completed in 1682 for the government of Pennsylvania was derived from the Bible. He deduced from various passages the origination and descent of all human power from God, the divine right of government, and that for two ends, first, to terrify evildoers, secondly, to cherish those who do well. Penn's philosophy, I must note, is drawn directly from Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter 2.13. So that government, he said, seems to me to be a part of religion itself, a thing sacred in its institutions and ends, meaning purposes. Let men be good, and government cannot be bad. That, therefore, which makes a good constitution must keep it, namely men of wisdom and virtue, qualities that, because they descend not with worldly inheritance, must be carefully propagated by a virtuous education of youth, which we haven't had in over a hundred years. The first legislative act passed at Chester, Pennsylvania, the 7th of the 12th month, December 1682, announced the ends of a true civil government. The preamble recites that, whereas the glory of Almighty God and the good of mankind is the reason and end of government, and therefore government in itself is a venerable ordinance of God, for as much as it is principally desired and intended by the proprietary and governor and the freemen of Pennsylvania and territories thereunto belonging, to make and establish such laws as shall best preserve true Christian and civil liberty in opposition to all unchristian, licentious, and unjust practices, whereby God may have his due, Caesar his due, and the people their due from tyranny and oppression. The frame of government contained the following articles on religious rights. Quote, that all persons living in this province who confess and acknowledge the one almighty and eternal God to be the creator, upholder, and ruler of the world, and who then hold themselves obliged in conscience 
to live peaceably and justly in civil society shall in no wise be molested or prejudiced for their religious persuasion or practice in matters of faith and worship, nor shall they be compelled at any time to frequent or maintain any religious place, worship, any religious worship place or ministry whatsoever. They couldn't be made to go to your church. William Penn went about planting his colony and establishing his government in Pennsylvania in 1682 caused the following law to be made, quote, to the end that looseness, irreligion, and atheism, and atheism may not creep in under the pretense of conscience in this province, be it further enacted by the authority aforesaid that, according to the good example of the primitive Christians, those are the first few centuries after Christ, and for the ease of the creation, every first day of the week called the Lord's Day, people shall abstain from their common toil and labor, that whether masters, parents, children, or servants, they may better dispose themselves to read the scriptures of truth at home or to frequent such meetings of religious worship abroad as may best suit their respective persuasions, abroad meaning outside of the home. In the judgment of this Quaker, patriarch, and legislature, legislator, says Bancroft, government derived neither its obligations nor powers from man. God was to him the beginning and the end of government. He thought of government as part of religion itself. Christians should keep the helm and guide the vessel of the state. Here, I'm going to omit the parts where Morris discusses Penn's desire, no matter how good-heartedly and naively, Penn's desires to convert the Indians to Christianity. Morris concludes by saying that Penn, as the wise founder of a civil commonwealth, provided measures for the general diffusion of the blessings of a Christian education. The Christian colonization of New York is contemporaneous with its first settlement. Commerce and Christianity are always in genial sympathy and cooperation. Now, I would amend that statement to free enterprise and Christianity and not commerce as we know it today. And as commerce, from the beginning of the colony in 1609, was a leading motive of the first settlers, so the Christian religion pioneered its way side by side with commerce. As early as 1613, four years after the discovery of Manhattan by Hudson, Holland merchants had established several trading posts. And in 1623, measures were taken to found an agricultural and Christian settlement. The first emigrants were those who had fled from the severity of religious persecution. In the 17th century, in the French-Belgic provinces, modern-day Belgium, and came with a faith tried in the fiery furnace. The East India Company, formed in 1621, stipulated that, where emigrants went forth under their auspices and that of the States General of Holland, it should be their duty to send out a schoolmaster, being a pious member of the church, 
whose office it was to instruct the children and preside in their religious meetings on the Sabbath and other days, leading in the devotions and reading a sermon until the regular ministry should be established over them. An individual was often designed as a zikentruster, comforter of the sick, who for his spiritual gifts was adapted to edify and comfort the people. In 1633, the first minister came over and associated with him as a schoolmaster who organized the church school. The introduction at this early period of the settlement of the colony of the church and the school combined cannot, therefore, be claimed as the peculiar distinction of the Puritan immigrants, those of New England and Pennsylvania, as the direct aim and the provision made in the early settlements by the Dutch was to extend and preserve in the midst of them the blessings of education and religion. The collegiate Dutch, the collegiate reformed Dutch Church of New York was the first found, was first found, I'm sorry, was the first church founded in North America and dates from the first settlement on Manhattan Island. The 17th century, constituting an important era of Christian colonization of the New World, brought to the North American colonies the rich Christian contribution from the Huguenots of France. All the colonies gave them a heart welcome as refugees from a frenzied and cruel religious persecution. They were ardent lovers of liberty and declared that, with their ministers, they had come to adore and serve God with freedom. These Christian exiles were warmly welcomed to the colony of New York and became one of the richest portions of the population. In 1662, they had become so numerous that the colonial laws and official papers were published in French as well as in Dutch and English. The French church in the city of New York became the metropolis of Calvinism, where the Huguenot immigrants came out of the city came to worship. In 1665, the colonial legislature of New York passed the following act in reference to Christianity and its ordinances. Quote, Whereas the public worship of God is much discredited for want of painful, meaning laborious, and able ministers to instruct the people in the true religion, it is ordered that a church shall be built in each parish capable of holding 200 persons, that ministers of every church shall preach every Sunday and pray for the king, queen, the duke of York, and the royal family, and to marry persons after legal publication of license. It was also enacted that Sunday is not to be profaned by traveling, by laborers, or vicious persons, and church wardens to report twice a year all misdemeanors, such as swearing, profaneness, Sabbath-breaking, drunkenness, fornication, adultery, and all such abominable sins. These are the early laws of New York. Persons were punished with death who should any, in any way deny the true God or his attributes. These were the laws of the colony of New York until 1683. The following paper will much better, will show better the attention that the early settlers of New York paid to education 
and is an amusing relic of colonial antiquity. It belongs to the ancient local history of Flatbush, which is today a part of Queens in New York City. Flatbush, Long Island. Article 1. The school shall begin at 8 o'clock and go out at 11. Shall begin again at 1 o'clock and end at 4. The bell shall be rung before the school begins. Article 2. When the school opens, one of the children shall read the morning prayer as it stands in the catechism and close with the prayer before dinner. And in the afternoon, the same. The evening school shall begin with meaning after one o'clock, shall begin with the Lord's Prayer and close by singing a psalm. Article 3. He shall instruct the children in common prayers and the questions and answers of the catechism on Wednesdays and Saturdays to enable them to say them better on Sunday in the church. Article 4. He shall be bound to keep his school nine months in succession from September until June, one year with another, and shall always be present himself. Article 5. He shall be chorister of the church, ring the bell three times before service, and read a chapter of the Bible in church between the second and third ringing of the bell. After the third ringing, he shall read the Ten Commandments and the Twelve Articles of Faith, and then set the psalm. In the afternoon, after the third ringing of the bell, he shall read a short chapter or one of the psalms of David as the congregation or assembly. Afterwards, again, he shall set the psalm. Article 6. When a minister shall preach at Brooklyn, Brookland, which is now Brooklyn, or Utrecht, he shall be bound to read twice before the congregation from the book used for the purpose. He shall hear the children recite the questions and answer off the catechism on Sunday and instruct them. Article 7. He shall provide a basin of water for the baptism, for which he shall receive twelve stivers and wampum for every baptism from parents or sponsors. He shall furnish bread and wine for communion at the charge of the church. He shall also serve as messengers for the consistories. Article 8. He shall give the funeral invitations and toll the bell, and for which he shall receive for persons of 15 years of age upwards, twelve guilders, and for persons under 15, eight guilders, if he, if he shall cross the river to New York, meaning Manhattan. He shall have four guilders more. This paper had a salutation. Done and agreed on in consistory, in the presence of the honorable constables and overseers, this 8th day of October, 1682. And it's signed by these constables and overseers. These are original articles regulating religion and education in New York in the borough of what is now Queens. So New York, as well as Pennsylvania, were established as Christian colonies, and Christianity was a large part of the governance of those colonies, written into their legislation. New Jersey became an independent colony in 1664, remember that New Jersey was originally a part of William Penn's grant, so it was part of Pennsylvania. Its moral character was molded by New England Puritans, English Quakers, and dissenters from Scotland, 
an association of church members from the Haven, from the New Haven Colony, resolved with one heart to carry on their spiritual and town affairs according to godly government, quote, unquote. And in 1668, the Colonial Legislative Assembly, under Puritan influence, transferred the chief features of the New England Codes to the Statute Book of New Jersey. New Jersey increased in population and prosperity under the genial presence of Christian institutions and became distinguished for intelligence, industry, and enterprise. The people, says Bancroft, rejoiced under the reign of God, confident that he would beautify the meek with salvation. The Christian teachings of the Quakers, in union with Presbyterian and Anabaptist influences, made New Jersey and its colonial structure a model Protestant republic. These were interwoven into the earliest elements of the political society of New Jersey and constitute one of the beautiful historical incidents of the age. The people have always enjoyed a high reputation for piety, industry, economy, and good morals. They received in practice such Christian lessons as the following given by their friends in England in 1681, quote, friends that are gone to make plantations in America, keep the plantations in your own hearts, that your vine, your own vines and lilies be not hurt. You that are governors and judges, you should be eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, and fathers to the poor, that you may gain the blessing of those who are ready to perish, and cause the widow's heart to sing for gladness. If you rejoice because your hand has gotten much, if you say to the fine gold, you are my confidence, you will have denied the God that is above. The Lord is ruler among nations. He will crown his people with dominion, unquote. The high standard of Christian morality in the Congress in the colony of New Jersey was indicated by the motto on the provincial seal, Righteousness Exalts a Nation. A proclamation made by Governor Bass in 1697 contains the following Christian record. Quote, it being very necessary for the good and prosperity of this province that our principal care be in obedience to the laws of God to endeavor as much in us as much as in us lies the extirpation of all sorts of looseness and profanity and to unite in the fear and love of God and one another, that, by the religious and virtuous carriage and behavior of everyone in his respective station and calling, the blessing of Almighty God may accompany our honest and lawful endeavors. I do, therefore, by and with the advice of the council of this province, strictly prohibit, cursing, swearing, immoderate drinking, Sabbath-breaking, and all sorts of lewdness and profane behavior in word and action, and do strictly charge and command. All justices of the peace, sheriffs, constables, and all other officers within the province, that they take due care that all laws made and provided for the suppression of vice and encouraging of religion and virtue, particularly the observance of the Lord's Day, 
do we put into execution? That was an actual law signed, proclaimed by the governor of New Jersey in 1697. If it was enforced today, we could just build a wall of bars around the state because they should all be in prison. Incredible. Delaware. Delaware, I'm just going to touch on briefly here. Delaware had a Christian colonization. Gustus Adolphus of the royal family of Sweden projected an enterprise to aid in the Christian settlement of the New World. Its object, though in part commercial, was declared to be for the benefit of the whole Protestant world. In 1637, two vessels fitted out by the government of Sweden carried out a band of emigrants with their Christian teachers, and in the spring of 1638, they sailed into Delaware Bay and began the Christian colonization of that region. In 1640, the colony received Christian immigrants from New England. It continued a political connection with the colony of Pennsylvania, of which it was originally a part, until 1704, when it became an independent commonwealth. Chapter 8 of Morris's book, and the colonization of Virginia. Began in 1607, 14 years previous to the Puritan settlement in New England, and 75 years before the William Penn gave to Pennsylvania the basis of the Christian government. In April 1606, James, King of England, granted to a colony forming to emigrate to America a charter for the possession of those territories lying on the seacoast between the 34th and 45th degrees of north latitude. It must be said that this original charter for the colony of Virginia included all the coastlands from the southern border of North Carolina to the northern border of Maine. It, Virginia would be bigger than California. And all the islands within 100 miles of those shores were included in that charter. That charter declared that the design of the colonists to be to make habitation and plantation and to deduce a colony of sundry of our people into that part of America commonly called Virginia and that so noble work may, by the providence of Almighty God, hereafter tend to the glory of his divine majesty in propagating of the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and in miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God, and may in time bring the infidels and savages living in those parts to human civility and a quiet government. They wanted to Christianize the Indians, as we'll see in several of these states. It is, moreover, in the Virginia Charter of 1609 declared, quote, that it shall be necessary for all such as inhabit, inhabit within the precincts of Virginia, to determine to live together in the fear and true worship of Almighty God, Christian peace, and civil quietness. And that, quote, the principal effect which we, the crown, can desire or expect of this action is the conversion and reduction of the people in those parts under the true worship of God and the Christian religion. In a code of laws for the government of the Virginia colony, which the king assisted to frame, were, quote, enjoined the preaching of the gospel in America and the performance 
of divine worship in conformity with the doctrines and rites of the Church of England. The colony of Virginia consisted of churchmen of England and many of their first acts related to provision for the church. The ministers were considered not as pious and charitable individuals, but as officers of the state bound to promote the true faith and aid sound morality by authority of the community by which they were paid and to which they were held responsible for the performance of their duty. The very first act of the assembly required every settlement in which the people worship God to build a house to be appropriated exclusively for that purpose. The second act imposed a penalty of a pound of tobacco for absence from divine service on Sunday. So the colony of Virginia basically brought with them Anglicism from England. And another act prohibited any man from disposing of his tobacco until the minister's portion was paid. When the population had increased to 50,000, in 1668 there were, quote, nearly 50 Episcopal, Episcopal parishes with as many glebes, church edifices, and pastors. Episcopacy was established by law. Attendance was enforced by penalties. Even the sacramental services of the church were legally enjoined upon the people. Everything wore the appearance of a very strict religious economy. The Christian religion was the underlying basis and a pervading element of all the social and civil institutions of the Virginia colony. And, and this is why we saw in, in the founding of this republic that the founding fathers had to agree to disagree and put the Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights that no religious sect would be forced on all the people of this nation. In 1662, the Assembly of Virginia passed an act to make, per, uh, to make permanent provision for the establishment of a college. This preamble of the act establishing it recites, quote, that the want of able and faithful ministers in this country deprives us of those great blessings and mercies that always attend upon the service of God. And the act itself declares that for the advancement of learning, education of youth, supply of the ministry, and promotion of the piety, there be land taken up and purchased for a college and free school, and that with all convenient speed there be buildings erected upon it for entertainment of the students and scholars. In 1693, the College of William and Mary was founded, and we see that again, like in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey, in Virginia, Christianity was written into the laws of the colony. However, in Virginia, they took it a step further, and compelled everybody in the colony to worship Christ and, and who is God, to worship Christ and God after the approved manner of the Anglican Church. Maryland began her colonial settlement in 1632. under the auspices of Lord Baltimore, a British nobleman and a Roman Catholic. His, object, his object was to, quote, people a territory with colonists of his own religious faith 
and to erect an asylum in North America for the Catholic religion, Maryland. He obtained a charter from Charles I, in which it was declared that the grantee was actuated by a laudable zeal for extending the Christian religion and the territory of the British Empire. And if any doubt should ever arise concerning the true meaning of the charter, there should be no construction of it derogatory to the Christian religion. The first band of colonists consisting of 200 men of rank, led by Leonard Calvert, the brother of Lord Baltimore, sailed from England in November 1632 and landed on the coast of Maryland early in 1633. As soon as they landed, the governor erected a cross and took possession of the country, quote, for our Lord Jesus Christ and for our sovereign Lord, the King of England. To every emigrant, 50 acres of land were given an absolute fee and the recognition of Christianity is the established faith of the land with an exclusion of the political predominance or superiority of any particular sect or denomination of Christians was enacted. The colonists soon converted a desolate wilderness into a flourishing commonwealth enlivened by industry and adorned, adorned by civilization. Religious toleration was I'm sorry, from the beginning proclaimed as one of the fundamental laws of the colony. The assembly, mostly of the Roman Catholic faith, passed in 1650 a memorable Christian act entitled An Act Concerning Religion. The preamble declared that, quote, the enforcement of the conscience had been of dangerous consequence in those countries where it had been practiced. These are words that we see echoed many times by the founders of the Republic later on. And therefore it was ordained, quote, that no person professing to believe in Jesus Christ should be molested on account of their faith or denied the free exercise of their particular modes of worship. So we see... Just, as like, just like we saw with Pennsylvania and William Penn, and in Virginia, to a harsher degree, that any religion was respected, as long as it was the Christian religion. This act of religious toleration was as honorable to the first Catholic colony as it was a fitting tribute to the genius and sanction of the Christian religion. It was the earliest example, says Judge Story, who was a, who was a um, constitutional convention delegate of a legislature of a legislator? I'm sorry, inviting his subjects to the free indulgence of religious opinion, as long as it was Christian religious opinion. I must add, South Carolina. We'll see. South Carolina was a lot more tolerant. Probably not a good asset in some respects. South Carolina began her colonial existence in history under the auspices of the Christian religion. In 1662, a company of emigrants, generally grandees of England and courtiers of Charles II, obtained a charter and settled in South Carolina. I must add that this was because 
that this was as a reward because they assisted Charles II in the restoration after Cromwell. In the charter, it was stated that the colonists, excited with a laudable and pious zeal for the propagation of the gospel, had begged a certain country in, in the parts of America not yet cultivated and planted and only inhabited by some barbarous people who had no knowledge of God. In 1669, a second charter was obtained and the outlines of its government under the title of The Fundamental Constitution of Carolina was drawn up by John Locke, the great Christian philosopher, who, I must add, we will see was a good Christian, but sadly he was also quite the universalist, naive enough to believe that both Jews and savages can think as we do. Back to Morris. Who declared that Christianity had God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. In that constitution, it is declared that, quote, Since the natives of the place who will be concerned in our plantations are utterly strangers to Christianity, whose idolatry, ignorance, or mistake gives us no right to expel or treat them ill, and whose, those who remove from other parts to plant there, meaning those other immigrants into South Carolina, will undoubtedly be of different opinions concerning matters of religion, the liberty whereof they will expect to have allowed them, and it will not be reasonable on this account to keep them out, that civil peace may be maintained amidst the diversity of opinions and our agreement and compact with all men may be duly and faithfully observed. The violation whereof, upon whatever pretense whatsoever, cannot be without great offense to the Almighty God and great scandal to the true religion which we profess. Here's where he turns wrong. And also that Jews, heathens, and other dissenters from the purity of Christian religion may not be scared and kept at a distance from it, but by having opportunity of acquainting themselves with the truth and reasonableness of its doctrines and the peaceableness and the inoffensiveness of its professors, may by good usage and persuasion and all those convincing methods of gentleness and meekness suitable to the rules and designs of the gospel, be won over to embrace and unfeignedly to receive the truth. Therefore, any seven or more persons agreeing in any religion shall constitute a church or profession to which they shall give some name to distinguish it from others. I must add that John Locke sadly thought that wolves could be sheep. In the terms of communion of every such church or profession, it was required that the following three articles should appear. One, that there is a God. Two, that public worship is due from all men to this supreme being. And three, that every, and that every citizen shall, at the command of the civil magistrate, Deliver judicial testimony with some form of words indicating a recognition of divine justice and human responsibility. Only the acknowledged members of some church or profession were capable of becoming free men of Carolina. 
sadly that included synagogues, or of possessing any estate or habitation within the province. And all persons were forbidden to revile, disturb, or in any way persecute the members of any religious association allowed by law. What was enjoined to freemen was permitted to slaves, by an article which declared that, since charity obliges us to wish well to the souls of all men, and religion ought to alter nothing in any man's civil estate or right, it shall be lawful for slaves as well as others to enter themselves and be of what church or profession any of them shall think best and therefore be as fully members as any freeman. So we see that the courtiers of Charles II set up a colony of tolerance far beyond that of the other colonies, except perhaps for Georgia. It must be noted, however, that many slaves of this period were white as well as black, and that a religious profession and recognition of providence were a requirement in order to be a free citizen of the state and, and participate in its civil institutions. In another of the articles of the Fundamental Constitution of South Carolina, it was declared that whenever the country should be, should be sufficiently peopled and planted, the provincial parliament should enact regulations for the building of churches and the public maintenance of divines, ministers, to be employed in the cause of religion according to the canons of the Church of England, which being the only true and orthodox and the national religion of all the king's dominions is so also of Carolina. And therefore, it alone shall be allowed to receive public maintenance by grant of parliament. It seems to me that South Carolina was definitely planted with a different spirit than the northward colonies. Unlike Virginia, they recognized Anglicanism as, as the official religion, but unlike Virginia, they didn't force it on people. Yet they were um, liberal beyond the bounds of Christianity. After 20 years of experiment, the form of government instituted by Locke was abolished. French Protestants and dissenters from England became the ruling power and established a more just and liberal system of government. I can't imagine being too much more liberal. North Carolina, from the beginning of her colonial history, laid the basis of her institutions on Christianity. The first permanent settlements were made by fugitives from Virginia who sought refuge from the intolerant, rigid laws of that colony, which bore so heavily on all that could not conform to the ceremonies of the established church. Virginia was Anglican to the practical exclusion of the other sects, which was something that Mason and Madison, both Virginians, later legislated against. Much later. When the Puritans were driven from Virginia, some eminently pious people settled along the seaboard, where they might be free from the oppression of intolerant laws and bigoted, meaning bigoted towards the, the Anglicans, magistrates. About the year 1707, a colony of Huguenots located on the Trent River and of the, one of the Palatines, or Germans, at New Bern, each maintaining 
the peculiar religious services of the fatherland. The Quakers were, like other sects, compelled to flee from the severe laws passed against them in Virginia and sought refuge in Carolina. As early as 1730, scattered families of Presbyterians from the north of Ireland were found in various parts of the colony. In 1736, a colony of Presbyterians came from the province of Ulster, Ireland, and made a permanent settlement. Subsequently, several other colonies of Presbyterians came from Ireland and settled in different sections of the colony. These Presbyterian bands rapidly increased and formed numerous large congregations, which multiplied into other congregations. And thus the colony became thoroughly Christian and the people imbued with the fervent love of liberty. In 1746 and 47, a large emigration of Scotch came into the colony of North Carolina. In the efforts of Prince Charles Edward to obtain the crown of England, the Scotch were in sympathy with him. George II, who prevailed, granted a pardon to a large number on the condition of their emigration and taking the oath of allegiance. This is the origin of the Scotch settlements in North Carolina. A large number who had taken up arms for the pretender preferred exile to death or subjugation in their native land, and during the years 1746 and 1747 emigrated with their families and those of many of their friends to North Carolina. In the course of a few years, large companies of industrious Highlanders joined their countrymen. The Christian people, both in Scotland and this country, contended, quote, that obligation to God was above all human control, and for the government of their conscience in all matters of morality and religion, the Bible is the storehouse of information, acknowledging no Lord of the conscience but the Son of God, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and the Bible as his divine communication for the welfare and guide of mankind. These ideas guided the founders of the Republic later on. The Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, who formed so large a proportion of the people of North Carolina and molded its religious and political character, were eminently pious and ardent lovers of liberty. Their religious principles swayed their political opinions, and in maintaining their form of worship and their creed, they learned republicanism before they emigrated to America. I have to say that the entire idea of republicanism is anchored in Christianity. We have fallen into democracy through Jewish guile and our own ignorance. Back to Morris. The religious creed of these Christian emigrants formed a part of their politics so far as to lead them to decide that no law of human government ought to be tolerated in opposition to the expressed will of God. Their ideas of religious liberty have given a coloring to their political notions on all subjects, have been indeed the foundation of their political creed. The Bible was their textbook on all subjects of importance 
and their resistance to tyrants was inspired by the free principles which it taught and enforced. The following instructions to the delegates of Mecklenburg County exhibit the sentiments of the people. On the Christian religion is the basis of government. It bears the date, September 1st, 1775. The Provincial Congress of North Carolina was then in session. The 13th provision. You are instructed to assent and consent to the establishment of the Christian religion as contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. So much for the so-called New Testament Christians who know a lot less about the Bible than these Scotch-Irish did. You are instructed to assent and consent to the establishment of the Christian religion as contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the religion of the state. To the utter exclusion forever of all and every other falsely so-called religion, whether pagan or papal, and that a full and free and peaceable enjoyment thereof be secured to all and every constituent member of the state as their individual right as freemen without the imposition of rites and ceremonies. This is important. They rejected churchianity. Whether claiming civil or ecclesiastical power for their source, and that a confession and profession of the religion as established shall be necessary in qualifying any person for public trust in the state. The 14th provision. You are also to oppose the establishment of any mode of worship to be supported for the oppression of the rights of conscience and at the destruction of private judgment. Again, these thoughts were echoed later by the founders of our republic. North Carolina was exclusively Christian by law. The political paper that declares that the people of North Carolina believed the Bible and from it drew their principles of morals, religion, and politics to abjure the Christian religion would have been with them to abjure freedom and immortality. They asserted in every political form the paramount authority of the Christian religion as the sole acknowledged religion of the state and community. These Christian men and others like them constituted the celebrated Mecklenburg Convention of North Carolina convened in 1775. The convention was composed largely of Presbyterians, the most distinguished of whom were ministers. The delegates met on the 15th of May, 1775, and during their sitting, news arrived of the Battle of Lexington. Every delegate felt the value and importance of the prize of liberty and the awful and solemn crisis which had arrived. Every bosom swelled with indignation at the malice, inveteracy, and insatiable revenge developed in the attack at Lexington on, on the part of the British. After a full and free discussion of various subjects, it was unanimously, quote, resolved 
that we, the citizens of Mecklenburg County, do hereby dissolve the political bands which have connected us with the mother country, and hereby absolve ourselves from allegiance to the British crown, and abjure all political connection, contract, and association with that nation which has wantonly trampled on our rights and liberties and inhumanly shed the innocent blood of the American patriots at Lexington. Resolved that we do hereby declare ourselves a free and independent people that we are and of right ought to be a sovereign and self-governing association under the control of no power other than that of God and the general government of the Congress, meaning the Continental Congress, the Colonial Congress of, of the colonies, to the maintenance of which independence we solemnly pledge to each other our mutual cooperation, our lives, our fortunes, and our most sacred honor. This declaration of independence preceded the one made by Congress in 1776 by more than a year. It is a noble monument of the, patron, of the patriotism and piety of the people of North Carolina. Finally, the colony of Georgia. Georgia has a suggestive Christian history. James Oglethorpe, a member of the British Parliament, imbued with the philanthropic spirit of the gospel, obtained in 1732 a charter from George II to establish a colony in North America. He had in former years devoted himself to the benevolent work of relieving multitudes in England who were imprisoned for debt and suffering in loathsome jails. Actuated by Christian motives, he desired to see these poor sufferers placed in an independent condition. And projected a colony in America for that purpose. For them, and for prosecuted Protestants, says Bancroft, he planned an asylum and a destiny in America where former poverty could be no reproach and where the simplicity of piety could indulge the spirit of devotion without fear of persecution from men who hated the rebuke of its example. Probably the Jews of London. This Christian enterprise enlisted the benevolence of England the charities of an opulent and enlightened nation were to be concentrated on a new plantation. The Society for Propagating the Gospel in Foreign Parts sought to promote its interests, and Parliament showed its goodwill by contributing 10,000 pounds. In January 1732, Oglethorpe, with 120 emigrants, landed in America and on the basis of the Christian religion laid the future commonwealth of Georgia. The Christian liberality and philanthropy of the founder of the colony spread its fame far and wide, for it was announced that the rights of citizenship and all the immunities of the colony would be extended to all Protestant immigrants from any nation in Europe desirous of refuge from persecution or willing to undertake the religious instruction of the Indians. The Moravians or United Brethren, a denomination of Christians founded by Count Zinzendorf, a German nobleman of the 15th century, were invited to emigrate to the colony of Georgia. They accepted the invitation, and in the winter of 1736, and this is pretty much in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, 
Their object was to Christianize and convert the Indians and to aid in planting the institutions of the New World on the basis of Christianity. The Journal of John Wesley during, during the voyage exhibits the godly manner of the immigrants. Our common way, he says, of living was this. From four of the morning till five, each of us used private prayer. From five to seven, we read the Bible together, carefully comparing it that we might not lean to our own understanding with the writings of the earliest ages. And I must say that, as I have said for years, the Bible and the classics go hand in hand, and then we can understand both God and history. To continue with Wesley, at eight were public prayers, at four were the evening prayers, when either the second lesson was explained or the children were catechized and instructed before the congregation. From five to six, we again used private prayer. At seven, I joined with the Germans in their public service. At eight, we met again to exhort and instruct one another. Between nine and ten, we went to bed, where neither the roaring of the sea nor the motion of the ship could take away the refreshing sleep which God gave us. What a Christian way of spending the time for emigrants sailing over the mighty deep to aid in the founding of a Christian empire on the shores of a new world. When these Christian emigrants touched the shore, their first act was to kneel and return thanks to God for their having safely arrived in Georgia. Our end in leaving our native country, they said, is not to gain riches and honor, but singly this, to live wholly to the glory of God. Their object was to, quote, make Georgia a religious colony having no theory but devotion, no ambition but to quicken the sentiment of piety. The Christian founder of the Commonwealth of Georgia carried his Christian principles into all the official transactions of the colony, meaning Oglethorpe. The survey and division of the lots in the city of Savannah were conducted under the sanctions of religion. On the 7th of July, 1733, the bluff, on the bluff of the river before Oglethorpe's tent, and having returned thanks to Almighty God, and joined in prayer for his blessing to rest upon the colony in the city they were about to found, they proceeded to lay out the lots and divide them in a Christian manner. They felt and said, quote, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain, unquote. Under the administration of Oglethorpe, the colony greatly prospered and increased in numbers. His undertaking will succeed, said Johnson, the governor of South Carolina, for he nobly devotes all his powers to serve the poor and rescue them from wretchedness. He bears a great love to the servants and children of God, said the pastor of a Moravian church. He is taking care of us to the utmost of his ability God has so blessed us with his presence and his regulations in the land that others would not in many years have accomplished what he has brought about in one, in one year. In 1734, after a residence of 15 months in Georgia, Oglethorpe returned to England. 
He succeeded in obtaining additional patronage for the colony and in October 1735 set sail with 300 emigrants. And after a long and stormy voyage, they reached the colony of Georgia in February 1736, where they were joined a few days after by a band of Christian emigrants from the highlands of Scotland. These colonists were accompanied by John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Their purpose was to aid Oglethorpe in his philanthropic labors and to convert the Indians to Christianity. I wonder if we have learned the folly of this lesson by now. Charles Wesley was held, held the office of Secretary for Indian Affairs and also that of a chaplain to Governor Oglethorpe. It is a matter of great interest, says the historian of Georgia, that religion was planted with the first settlers, and that the English, the Salzburgers, the Moravians, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Israelites, where here he mistakenly means the Jews, and Georgia was as tolerant of Jews as was South Carolina, severally brought with them the ministers of the worship of their respective creeds, rabbis in Georgia. The Christian element of colonization that without which the others are powerless to give true and everlasting elevation, entered largely into the colonization of Georgia and did much for her prosperity and glory. No colony can point to a leader or founder in whose character meet more eminent qualities or more enduring worth than in that of James Oglethorpe, the founder of Georgia. This following is the conclusion of this section on the foundation of the colonies. These Christian facts in the colonial history of our country suggest the following lessons. I'm still quoting Morris. One, the faith of the Puritans and of the founders of the various colonies in the divine origin and authority of civil government. Two, the subordination of civil government to the power of the Christian religion. Three, the end and operations of civil government to propagate and subserve the Christian religion. Four, the position and influence of the ministers of the gospel in the civil affairs of the state. And I must say, in conclusion, that our founding fathers taught these same things. Today, our Christian churches have signed away their responsibility to be the true community leaders, having voluntarily turned it over to the IRS and to the Jews in exchange for tax benefits. Now they are all the mere agents of the Antichrist Jewish state. Thank you. That's it. This is um, October 24th, and this was the voice of Christian Israel. Eli will be back next week. He will be here with me on Friday for our continued series on Ezekiel. Yahweh bless you.